Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. I'm Ethan. I'm Kent. I'm Michael. And I'm Brian. Hey, I just wanted to add something. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about performance anxiety and how to deal with it. And there was one thing that we didn't mention, as far as I remember. One thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, one of actually my favorite things to talk about uh, in terms of performance anxiety, which is the idea of embracing the anxious energy, the nervousness, and harnessing that and turning it into something good and worthwhile. So we talked a lot about how to temper it all and how to handle it and how to dim it all down so that it's all more manageable. Um, But ultimately, of course, this will arise. Everybody does get nervous happens all the time to everybody and so rather than trying to say no I don't want that to happen it shouldn't happen and I'm gonna try to prevent that from happening you can you know temper it all but you can also take it and embrace it and harness it and channel it towards something worthwhile and helpful following right along with your point is if instead of trying futilely to resist it if you embrace it and treat it as uh, a welcome part of the performance experience and say, hey, that's that feeling. Sweet, I'm ready to go. That sounds good, but I don't understand how you practically do this. Like when you start to, okay, here comes the solo, here comes the solo. Oh, I'm nervous. This feels great. I, I don't get it. <laughs> I, I think part of the concept comes from the idea that like the observation of something changes the nature of it. So like, we, if you, whoa, the more whoa. time, that's like quantum hey, physics right there. Hey, what are man. you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but if you're if you're aware, and if you sit and look at an emotion from like an outside perspective, it's kind of close to what we were saying before, where you can make it almost ridiculous. Where you're saying, "Man, my basal ganglia is out of whack," because if you look at it and you observe it, and I think that's the type of thing where, if you do it fifty times or a hundred times or whatever, then you know, that's that's when it starts making like a tangible difference. I don't know, maybe not. So the act of acknowledging it in and of itself changes things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think, think so. Okay. Like, I am nervous, and yeah. that's okay. It's kind of like the Seth Rogen <clears throat> approach where he just flat out says, oh, I'm feeling angry now, or whatever. Um, instead of showing that anger, he just says it, which is a silly thing and works pretty well in movies. Will Ferrell did that a lot too, like in SNL. And there's something just kind of like, I don't know, freeing about it. It kind of like releases all of the, uh, the ceremony that can be attached to all that. So if you just let us say, I'm feeling so nervous, then you're at a position where you can say, and that's okay, that's normal, and I'm going to take that. And so, you know, if you're about to play a solo and you get nervous one bar before you're going to play, that's that's too late. That's pretty unusual, and it would be tough to deal with. But if you're sitting backstage before you, you know, the whole thing starts and you're starting to feel it, that's a great point to be like, okay, here we go. I agree. I talked to a woman once who said that she actually... <laughs> Just once, Mike. <laughs> yes, she would only talk to me the one time. <laughs> But during that one conversation, she told me that she would actually, if she didn't feel nervous an hour before the performance, she would try to manufacture 
the anxiety. She would try to call it up and summon it because inevitably um, the nervousness was going to come and better that she could have some sense of control over the timing and have the opportunity to, to process it and deal with it. Um, and sure enough, I've, I've had some experiences where I wasn't at all nervous before walking on stage for a recital, walk out the door, look at the audience and then freak out. Um, that's no good. Sometime in the first movement of Beethoven 4, you should start getting <laughs> nervous. <laughs> don't, don't wait until one bar. Ironically, the very first time we played it on Monday, I was kind of managing, you know, I, I could see it coming. And I was like, all right, it's coming. I'm going to do it. And then we did it. And then as soon as I got done playing, I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was like shaking for like another two minutes afterwards. It's kind of like... Uh... Uh, Bruce Banner and they say how do you control the Hulk how do you stay calm and the big reveal at the end of the movie was I'm always angry he's always angry well in order for you to perform you gotta be always nervous actually you know honestly if you could do that you could find a way to practice while being nervous as you would be in a performance wow that'd be fantastic that would totally level the playing field Mm -hmm. and you'd be able to deal with it so perhaps rather than use a beta blocker, you should find just the beta opposite. Beta enhancer. <laughs> Take a pill before you practice. Beta bomb. <laughs> so as you mentioned, you're playing Beethoven's fourth. And this is Beethoven's fourth symphony. Correct. Um, the Boulder Chamber Orchestra is about to perform it. And I'm playing because my wife is super pregnant and wanted to not play. So I'm filling in on second banana for this thing, and we're doing, there's a Rossini overture, which has only one bassoon, which sounds pretty goofy. So there's the Rossini overture, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 4, and a piano piece by Chopin. So I've had the pleasure of sitting next to Kent as he rockets through Beethoven Symphony Number no. 4, which, if you're not familiar, has a, what, six-beat long, very difficult bassoon solo in the fourth movement it's very fast quarter note equals 160 and it's all tongues so you have to double tongue it and there's a very devilish grace note in the middle of it all it's about that fast and the whole thing starts on the second beat of the measure and that's something I had to come to grips with because I practiced the whole excerpt you don't think about that in context with the uh, where the orchestra actually is, and I would always think about that dugga 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 being one, and so having to apply it. That's stupid. I should have known that from the beginning and thought about it, but having to kind of reset my brain to think about that starting on the second beat actually added uh, a little bit of difficulty to playing that excerpt. So I've been trying to reset my mind around that the last couple of weeks. It's kind of a pick up those first four notes. Mm-hmm. Yes. This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast is brought to you by Forest's Music. For all your double read interests, 
check out forestsmusic.com. So we're playing Beethoven's fourth, and it got me thinking, like, what would it have been like to have been the first bassoonist to play this thing? For that matter, what would it have been like to be the first bassoonist to play any of these big solos, like especially Rite of Spring, or what would be some other good ones? Maybe Symphony Fantastique. Scheherazade. That'd be a good one. A lot of these pieces you're talking about are like groundbreaking pieces at the time. Right. The fifth was very avant-garde at the time. Beethoven fifth. Um, Beethoven fifth, yeah. Symphony Fantastique was very new. What was some of the Rite of Spring caused a riot? The Rite of Spring, yeah. The Riot of Spring. (laughs) 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 So not only is there this pressure to do this new music, but they seem to be on the this cusp of new stuff that has extra pressure from an artistic standpoint. Does it give it more pressure or less pressure? If nobody's ever heard it before and no one knows how it ought to go, then who would know? That's true. That's true. Like, yeah, exactly. Did they feel more pressure at the world premiere of a performance like this? I would imagine for something like Rite of Spring, the answer was yes, because it must have been a full audience if it resulted in a riot. It was a very hyped event, um, and there were... There were differing schools of um, sort of musical thought and musical criticism in Paris at the time, and each camp had had brought out their supporters. I'd also heard that the producer of the ballet kind of stacked the deck in that sense and wanted to create a big thing happening, and so he uh, sat people such that they were bound to start arguing with each other about whether or not it was a good piece or appropriate or whatever, and so it worked, blew up. I also heard on the radio recently that this other composer, a composer I've never heard of, the host on Colorado Public Radio referred to him as the world's laziest composer because he was really good, but he was also very slow and he would be commissioned for these big pieces, but he never actually finished them, um, including he was supposed to be the guy writing the music for what turned out to be Firebird, but Diaghilev or whatever said... No, this isn't working out. I'm going to hire this other guy, Stravinsky. And obviously that's turned into a huge deal. So who knows what could have happened had this other guy, whose name I can't remember, written the music for it. So yeah, I was wondering if they have that sense of like, this is important. This is a big deal. I would imagine in the case of Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, the answer would kind of be, yeah, you know, yeah. Because again, for the bassoonist, it's six exposed beats. And we've heard stories from previous generations of bassoonists, how they would slur that thing as needed. And that yeah, that's really the most difficult part about it, is the crazy articulation. That's what the clarinet player does when he takes his turn. Because clarinets don't double tongue, I've been told. Um, and they, they do the slurs, usually. Yeah. So... I don't know when it became accepted to start double tonguing versus what you were saying. The earlier generation was slurring it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, the clarinets keep slurring it. Do you guys know more than I do about the key work of the instrument during Beethoven's time? No. Would you say this was premiered 1808 or something? Uh, the fifth and the sixth were 1808. So it probably doesn't uh, have fourth all those is 1806. Dentists. No, right. definitely doesn't have all the That would be before the Heckel system. Almond Rider, whatever his name is, created his version of the bassoon in the 1830s. 
and he taught Heckel. There's some story about Beethoven wanting to get his hands on the new bassoon at some point yeah. or to hear it in action. So we know there's some development going on with Before it. Before 1828? Yeah. When did he die? March 26, 1827. 27. So this is moving far afield. I ran across a YouTube video last night, I guess, of some guy standing in a window with a dulcian. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> like you do. And there was a, um, like a crow or a raven on the windowsill, so, you know, within an arm's length of the guy. And the guy would tootle around on the dulcian playing some basso continuo part, and he'd stop, and the crow would make whatever noise crows make. So, it's pretty funny. Nice. Uh, what the hell brought that to mind? <laughs> yeah, that was um, <laughs> keyword. <laughs> keyword. All right. <laughs> so, Kent, tell you were the tell us about the world premiere of the Fifth Symphony and everything else that was on that program. So, on that program, he premiered both his Fifth and Sixth Symphonies. It opened. They opened the program with the Sixth, and they did an aria. Then it looks like they did move a movement from a mass in C major. Then they did the fourth piano concerto, which Beethoven himself played, and that was the first half. And then to open up the second half, they did his fifth symphony, two more movements of the C major mass, and then an improvisation on the piano by Beethoven, and then they finished with the choral fantasy. Wow. And that concert was over four hours long. There's a bit of a description about the performance itself said the orchestra didn't play well since they had only one rehearsal before the concert, which that's a lot of music for one rehearsal. And like a mistake at one point in the choral fantasy by the performer, Beethoven had to stop and restart. The auditorium was cold. The audience was exhausted. The mistake was by... It was by a performer. But not, not Beethoven? No. Okay. So he had to start again. The whole piece? Doesn't say. Oh, man. That'd be brutal. <laughs> I wonder if that guy got fired. I wonder why they only had one rehearsal. That is a good question. I mean, obviously, Beethoven must have been pretty well known at this point because they did an entire program of his stuff. And unless he was personally paying for it, why would they have only one rehearsal? What, what was the date for this? This was December 22nd, 1808. So this is two years after the fourth was premiered. Have you guys ever performed the world premiere of a piece? Do you mean besides Bassoon Quartet Number no. 1 by Paul Hansen? Or yeah. How about like an orchestral work? A world premiere orchestral? Yes. What was it? It was a piece... I was in the Phoenix Symphony Youth Orchestra at the time, and they commissioned a composer by the name of Michael Abels to write us a piece, and he wrote a piece called Global Warming, uh, which had two... One was more of an Irish-sounding theme, and one was more of a... I don't know if it was African or Arabic or something like that. And so they each got their time to shine, and then they kind of combined the themes at the end. And It was fun. It was a good piece, actually. Do you know if it was ever performed again? I think it has been performed again. Because on a whim, I Googled it, and I saw a few different uh, you know, uh, entries for it. 
things people had done with it. So oh, that's it's cool. an interesting piece. Did it have a good bassoon part? It had a crazy difficult bassoon part. It was like way up in the high register, um, and it was like playing this uh, complicated melody with some of the others, like. It was crazy. It was crazy hard. So if that piece became huge, if it became world famous and really picked up centuries down the road, they're having the generations later version of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is happening and they're sitting around and they're saying like, I wonder what it was like to, for the first guy to play that piece. What would your answer be since you were the first guy to play that piece? Well, I enjoyed the piece. I thought it was an interesting take. I was scared to death of the bassoon part because it was hard and I was, I was a junior or senior in high school at the time. Th- those are my initial reactions. Is that enough? <laughs> well, see, now, if we were talking again about like a Beethoven symphony, a Rite of Spring or whatever, the answer would be, no, that's not enough. You just played a monumental work of art. Um, but I bet you in the context of that guy's experience of having, you know, one rehearsal, maybe a few more rehearsals and putting together this huge thing, then, yeah, actually, the answer is, yeah, that's enough. If you can just get through that and play all the right notes, well done. It's hard, yeah, I mean, it's hard to sit there at the time and say, this is going to be a monumental work of art. I mean, you don't know. You don't know what's going to be like that. Yeah, I think at the time, it's just enough to get your part played and get through the piece. It's pretty interesting the way that works. I wonder if that also rings true for uh, monumental works of art in other fields, like painting or sculpture or ballet or whatever do the people who are creating that art know at the time like yeah this is this is for real this is a big one yeah i had a friend in high school who seemed to be able to predict like if popular music came on the radio and it was some new band or something like that he could always predict which ones were going to be like really big bands and kind of explode and which ones were kind of going to fade into the into the ether just go away do you remember so which like ones he correctly called? Well, one was like the first, like the first song, the first single by Eminem came out, and he was like, "This guy is gonna be like, he's gonna just completely blow up." Oh. And uh, so he did that with Eminem and like a couple other. But yeah, there's. It seems like there's something. Has he listened to our music? <laughs> Not yet. I I don't think so. I, yeah. I haven't given him a copy. Have him tell our fortune. <laughs>